Good morning, everybody. As always, it is good to be here. I remembered my Hawaiian shirt, as was the mandate last weekend. From those of you that remembered, we're in Colossians 2, verses 16 through 23. And I've entitled this message, Dancing with Shadows. Dancing with Shadows. Uh, I am, I'm wired this morning. I've been just running all over the place, you know, trying to get a few last-minute things in for the summer celebration, and uh, we're excited for the baptism. A few other summer celebration things. If you'd like to play cribbage, we have a sign-up sheet in the entryway for the cribbage tournament. Someone needs to dethrone Jim McKay. All right? Someone here is appointed to that task. I know it. And uh, there's also the waterfront if you want to take a, a swim and... Uh, we have a nature trail in progress you can access, and it's going to be a good time of fellowship. Oddly enough, in that same body of water, when I was a teenager, I remember Caleb and I one day were going out in his uh, teal aluminum boat named Simplicity, and we were going to go fishing, and at this point, we barely knew how to fish. And I, someone gave us advice, it may have been Lisa, said, fish the shadows, Fish the shadows. Because it's the middle of the summer, right? And we're just, you know, going out there with worms and random bats lures. We're just trying to catch anything. And, you know, I, I wasn't a biologist. Still, I'm not a biologist, but I'm kind of a fish biologist now. And fish like a certain water temperature. And so in, in very hot times, they might like to be in the shadows because the better water temperature is there. They're also afraid of their number one predator, which is birds. You ever seen an eagle, like, slam a trout? It's awesome. But birds are like one of the number one predators of fish, and so they like to stay in the shadows. And so this was an instance where shadows were a helpful thing. Shadows were a helpful thing. But yet, if you were to stay out in your boat too long, those shadows get bigger and bigger and bigger until everything's dark, and then you might get into a boating accident. Or you might not be able to see where your hook's going and hook your buddy in the eye. So... Shadows can be good, but they can also be a hazard. They can be good, but they're also a hazard. And so today we're talking about the shadows of religion. The shadows of religion. I'll explain that more as we get into it. But we must not allow the shadows of religion to replace what Jesus has accomplished. That's our main point today, is that we must not allow the shadows of religion to replace what Jesus has accomplished. And so if you're not there already, please turn to uh, Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 16. This is written by the Apostle Paul in the first century to Christians in Colossae. He says in verse 16, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to festival, or new moon, or Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So if we were to kind of peel our brains back to last week, Paul had just been speaking about, um, kind of on the same topic, hey, don't listen to these religious folks, they're trying to get you off following Jesus, they're trying to change the recipe. They're trying to add in elements that distract you from who Christ is and what Jesus has already accomplished. 
And so he says, therefore, don't let people condemn you and judge you on things that really don't matter, on these physical elements of religion, issues of what to eat and what to drink and where you celebrate and when you celebrate. He says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. These are shadows. They point to something greater, and that greater thing is Jesus himself. Now, like we said, it's kind of tough to understand what he's talking about here in regards to false religion because it's a mix. It's a mix of some Jewish ideas and a mix of some Gnostic ideas. But both of these camps that would have been trying to infiltrate the the church had this heavy emphasis on uh, you you need to be very hard on your body. Okay, you need, to, you need to be very specific in what you eat, specific in how you worship, specific in what you don't eat and what you don't wear. There were a lot of ceremonies, and these ceremonies were the main thrust and focus of these two groups. It was a focus on using the physical, external, to affect what was going on in here, the heart, using the external to affect the inner man. And in Hebrews 8, chapter 8 and chapter 10, the apostle, actually we don't even know who wrote Hebrews, um, they also use this phrase shadow in reference to religion. He says, there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. For since the law, this is in in chapter 10, verse 1, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So what Hebrews is saying is the old sacrificial system and all the ceremonies that God gave his Old Testament people, they had a purpose. They were meaningful in that they pointed to Jesus Christ. They pointed to what Jesus was going to accomplish. He says, well, why would you turn back to those things? Because we now have the substance of those shadows. So shadows are not inherently bad. Religious ceremony, religious tradition is not inherently evil. It serves a purpose in pointing us to greater realities. But sometimes the shadows become too much and they distract people from those realities they serve to point to. Or in some cases, the shadows are just blatantly wrong. In verse 18 and 19, Paul says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. He's saying, don't let people trick you. Don't let them get you off the path. Don't let them steal your reward because they're changing the recipe. They're trying to get you off from following Christ and into their own little camp where they have their own little set of, you got to do this, you can't do this. And it's entirely focused on that and you lose track of who Jesus is and what he's already done for you. 
Don't let these people disqualify you. He mentions asceticism, which is this humiliation and severity of the body in religion. There's a long history of asceticism. Some of you might know that word. Some of you might not. You could use it in Scrabble if you want and wow some people. But it's this religious practice that often involves heavy fasting, isolation. How many of you have seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail? The trick question in church. That's where all the sinners are. No, I... I love that movie, and there's a scene in that movie where all the, there are all these monks going around, and they go, Requie Domine, and then they smack themselves with a piece of wood, and they take a few steps, and they do it again. That's a joke about asceticism, about this movement that was present uh, when this was written and was present in the Dark Ages. It's still present today, where people go all in on very severe ways to control your body to obtain a spiritual goal. And I'm sure there are all sorts of examples running through your heads of crazy things people have done to try to obtain something spiritually, especially monks and people in situations like that. But he says, look, don't listen to the people that are insisting on these things. Who say, look, you aren't, really, you aren't a real follower of Jesus. You aren't a true Christian. You don't really belong to God unless you follow our very rig- rigorous program are very rigorous steps of how you seek God. If you don't fast as much as we do, if you do not isolate as much as we do, you're not real. You're not genuine. He says, don't listen to these people. He also mentions worshiping angels. Well, angels are real. They're real spiritual beings, but they are not God. When angels show up in the Bible, people go, whoa, and they try to worship them, and the angel goes, hey, don't do that. And yet, you, this, still, this is still... Guess what? False teaching hasn't really changed much in 2,000 years, 4,000 years. Okay, there are groups here in America that do this, where they worship angels, that they worship the angel rather than the God who made the angel. He also mentions this emphasis on visions. He says those who go on in detail about visions. Well, okay, visions are a real thing. We see them in the Bible. According to the prophet Joel, they were to be a sign of the new covenant. Like God can speak to people in visions. So what's the issue here? The issue is when someone is just going on and on and on about their visions and that becomes the focus of their religion. That it's, well, I had my special revelation from God. And so you need to do this, 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 and this. It's not about how God has revealed himself. It is now, no, I have my own new revelations of God and you need to listen to these. It's an emphasis away from Jesus. And he says, such people are prideful. They're prideful. They're puffed up in their secret knowledge that they've cracked the code, that they've developed this new practice to purify and perfect mankind. Or they've found this secret knowledge that once you meditate enough and once you really get that in your noggin, you're going to become the perfect man. And these are just lies. These are lies. He compares this in verse 19 to Christ, Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. He's the head. When the head is in charge, the body does well. But if your arms start doing stuff the head doesn't want, you're going to be in a world of hurt. Right? If you're driving down the road, your arm develops a mind of its own, you're in trouble. But when the church puts Christ first, focuses on Jesus The body grows healthy. It's interesting. We as churches often focus on programs to make us healthy or various practices to make us healthy. 
And yet, really, we just need to put Jesus first. Now, there's a lot of specifics in how we do that, a lot of wisdom in how we seek that. But when Jesus is first in the church, when he is the focus, the whole body is healthy. The church is healthy. Going down to verse 20 through 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world... Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And we talked a little bit about this idea of dying with Christ last week. That those who have put their trust in Christ, they've died with him. The old man is gone. The old man who was stuck in the ways of the world, in the paths of the world, in the way that the world thinks, he's gone. And now Christ is leading him in a new way. And he says, look, if Christ is doing something new in you, why would you turn back to all the old tricks of religion to try to please God? Or try to find enlightenment when Christ has done a new and amazing work in you. Why would you do that? It doesn't make sense. Why would you submit to these regulations, these people who say, you can't do that, and you can't do this, and you can't do that, and they have all these extra rules that they've added on, all of these new practices, when Christ is doing something new in you. And in verse 22, you know, you might not recognize it just reading it because it's the Bible, and the Bible is very serious. It's a very serious book. But he's actually referencing back to something that Jesus said, where Jesus was having this discussion with the religious elite, and they were kind of getting on his case because his followers didn't follow the ceremonial washing the same way that they did. And Jesus kind of calls him out on it. He's like, look, you think what I eat defiles me? You think that like what you chew and swallow and goes down into your stomach and then goes through other places we don't want to talk about, and then finally ends up in a latrine somewhere... You think that's what defiles you? It's gone. No, what defiles you is what's in your heart. Right? Like, that's where our wickedness comes from. That's where our problems come from. They don't come from the food we eat. Even if you you got allergies, okay? The consequences of allergies are never as bad as the consequences of my sin. They just never are. Right? It's our wicked hearts that defile us. And yet there are all these systems that focus They focus entirely on external ways to try to adjust your soul. And they don't work because we need Jesus to do a a radical change to our hearts. We cannot please God on our own. We need the the work of Jesus that that God himself died for us. He took the penalty for our sins. He rose in power from the grave. So he has power over life and death, power over sin. He forgives us and he begins giving us new life, changing our heart. That's our hope. It's not our hope that one day we're going to find the right yoga position or, or even the right Bible verse to memorize that's going to make us perfect. Our hope is in Jesus. And yet there's so many systems out there that sell you something else. We must not allow the shadows of religion to replace what Jesus has accomplished. How many of you have electricity that goes into your house Pretty much everyone, okay, maybe there's some mountain man that came in the back row, 
Pretty sure all of you have electricity that comes from somewhere and goes into your house or wherever you live. The power is already there. Right? In this building, the power has already run to the building. The power has been provided, and yet we have a lot, a lot of little tasks that we need to do to interact with that power. Right? We flip a light switch. If I, if I want to you know, heat up my lunch in the kitchen, I have to hit a bunch of numbers on the microwave. If I want to charge my phone, i got to plug it into the socket. But am I creating power when I do those things? No, it's already there. Now, I'm no electrician, but I know that if I could generate electricity by flipping a light switch, I'd just be doing this all day. Right? It'd be a lot cheaper. But you do not generate electricity by flipping a light switch. The electricity has already been provided, and you are simply interacting with that electricity that's already in the circuitry and the wires and all the stuff that Gary Osgood knows about. Now, I don't want you to take this illustration too far. Okay? You could get some weird ideas out of that. But imagine that the power lines get snapped. When I flip the light switch, is anything going to happen? No. When I spam those numbers on the microwave, is anything going to happen? As many times as I press the power button on the TV remote, is anything going to happen? No, because there's no power running to the building. And this is how it is when it comes to worship and religion and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, is we need to be connected to the power source, and Jesus is the power source. Jesus is the one who gives us life. Jesus is the one who heals us. He's the one who forgives us. He's the one who's done everything, and he gives it to those who trust him. And yet somehow, our minds can get twisted in that we think when we flip the light switch, as we interact with the saving power of Jesus, that somehow we're the ones doing something. And what's scary is if we get so focused on the light switches and the buttons, we start to think that we're the ones generating the electricity. We're the ones generating the power. And eventually, you might find a situation where there's no power running to the building, but everyone is flipping the light switches and they think they're having a grand old time. This is what happens in religion. Is that the shadows become the focus. And that focus on the shadows strangles. So here's the danger of shadows. Two dangers, just to kind of summarize. The first is that unknown, obscure, and even idolatrous ideas can become primary. Unknown, obscure, and even idolatrous ideas can be primary. What do I mean by this? Well, um, we as humans, we're trying to figure life out. We're trying to figure out who God is. We're trying to figure out how to worship. And, you know, guess what? We actually get stuff wrong. Yes. Uh-huh. Well, we sometimes get stuff wrong because we're not God. We're not perfect. And that has a cumulative effect over time. It does. So I think the, the best example would be what's happened in Catholicism. Right? Because you go back in history to the ancient church, and there was one church. There was one visible church at one point. You were in it or you're out of it. And then there were a bunch of disagreements because people over here had their own practices and their own way of governing the church. People over here had a kind of different way of doing all that stuff. And eventually there was a lot of drama. And I'm, some of you are history people. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you aren't history people. So you don't really want me to tell you. And there was a schism. The church split in half. 
you then had the Eastern Church and the Western Church. And the Western Church became what we would know as the Roman Catholic Church, which if you've lived in New England more than two seconds, you know a thing or two about the Roman Catholic Church. Well, where did they get all those wacky ideas from? It was years and years and years of them taking the words of men, the decisions of their councils, and the things that popes had said, and some traditions that they had, and maybe some ideas that they developed that weren't clear in Scripture, but they decided, no, this is the way it is anyways. And then to support all these ideas and practices, they started developing new ideas and new practices to the point that you have a system that no longer preaches the gospel. Like, you wonder, well, where do you get an idea like purgatory from? It isn't in the Bible, right? This idea that, well, you know, really only the really good people go to heaven. And if you're kind of okay, well, you go to purgatory, and then you got to, you know, get rid of some of your sins so you can move on to heaven, and people can pray for you to get you out of purgatory. Where do you get an idea like, oh, we need to worship Mary, and we can actually pray to the saints and receive something from them? They had this idea, this treasury of merit, that, well, you need good works to get out of purgatory, and so you can access the saints' extra good works because they were so good. And how do you access those? Well, you pray to them to get those extra you know, goody points so you can get out of purgatory, get to heaven. And yeah, Jesus forgives you of, you know, Jesus forgives you of your sin, but then other sins you commit after the fact, well, you need to do things to get rid of those. That's called penance. And so eventually you have this huge system that says, hey, you need to do all of these severe and strange things to get to heaven, which is not what the Bible teaches. You won't find it. Okay? There's not even a book of the Bible named after Mary. And yet, right, it is so common, it's so easy to be a Catholic and not even be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's so easy to be a Catholic and actually just be a devotee to one of the saints. Why? Because the system has been corrupted. The shadows became primary, and then there were ideas built around these shadows, and the shadows have become the system. And we go, oh yeah, we like to rat on the Catholic Church, right? Oh yeah, we do it too. We do. We've had less time to mess it up though, Right? Especially here's Hall of Center Church. You know, we only got like a hundred years under the belt, you know. But as Protestant churches here in the US, we do the same thing. We've had less time to mess it up. But you'll find a movement of God or some group that develops an idea that's a little bit different than the ideas that other people have, or a certain way of doing church services that is different than the way other people do church services. And so they splinter off into their own little denomination. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But then over time, people begin to put their identity in their distinctives. It's no longer, I belong to Jesus, and these are the people that I worship Jesus with, but it becomes, well, I'm one of these people in this camp because we believe this specific thing and this specific thing, and we do our church services this way, and we practice this element in this fashion, and people can get focused on those elements, what makes them a Wesleyan or what makes them a Calvinist or what you know, makes them a Congregationalist or what makes them a Baptist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and we can begin following those groups and those founders and get our eyes off of Jesus. It's dangerous. This is what the shadows of religion do. So that's the first danger. And the second danger 
and I've already alluded to this, is that Christ's heart-changing power can be replaced by man's external efforts. I do not mean that it is an adequate replacement. You can replace a light bulb with a potato. It is not a light bulb. But we can have the audacity to to take Christ's heart-changing power and replace it with our own efforts. As I just mentioned, right, that whole Catholic system of penance and, and prayers to get out of purgatory and indulgences, that's man's effort. That's man's effort. Asceticism, that's man's effort. And guess what? Asceticism lives on even in our conservative Christian bubble here in southern Maine. It does. And I'm speaking into my own people group when I'm saying this, okay, because I kind of grew up in that private Christian school, homeschool bubble where we had our own curriculum and we had our own TV shows and we had our own lists. And what you find, which is very sad in these groups, are people who are rabid about the rules. They have their long lists of TV shows you can't watch, music you can't listen to, clothing that you can't wear, drinks you can't consume. And yet, don't seem to have the love of Jesus. I know you've experienced, especially those of you that, that like me, have your toes in that like homeschool, uh, conservative Christian bubble. You've experienced it. You go, man, you love church. And you love the rules, but have you met this guy named Jesus? Do you know the gospel? I I know you go to Awana, but do you know the gospel? Because it's so easy for us to focus on the external things, the practices of religion, that we lose track of what matters. And that's the completed work of Jesus. And yes, Jesus changes us. Jesus changes the way we live, but that is something that happens because of what he has done. Not, I need to change the way I live so I match Jesus, and then Jesus is my friend, and then I can move on. Yet so often, we try to change ourselves through external means. Parents, I think this is a hot topic right now in culture. Because so many young people, you know, grew up in this, this bubble where they were told basically the substance of Christianity is you can't do this, 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 this. You can't do these things. And then you've got to be at church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, youth group. That's the substance of Christianity. And then they turned 18 and they went, that doesn't really work. I don't really feel better because of that. And so they said, I'm just going to go, do, if, if Christianity is all about the things you can't do, I'm just going to go do the things I want to do. See ya. That's my generation. And, and sure, there's a lot going on in each of those situations, but Christianity is not about the things you can and can't do. It's not about the schedule we have. It's not about the schools we have. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. 
We cannot use external means to purify us. We need Christ to invade our lives and do a radical work that he keeps doing until we die and, and in eternity we reign with him. That's the end goal. That's the big game. Like, safe filters on your devices won't keep you from lust. They just won't. Helpful tool? Absolutely. But guess what? Our heart is where the wickedness comes from. You can lock yourself in a tower all you want, and you think that's going to solve all my problems, and it won't because your heart is still wicked. We need Jesus. We can't use external means to purify us and perfect us. So this is why I named this sermon Dancing with Shadows. That's kind of a weird sermon name. Maybe a cool band name. Not really a sermon name. Actually, Caleb, Christian band. Yep. (laughs) Dancing with the shadows. Because we need shadows. We do. Like, I'm not here to stand here and say... Shadows are bad. We will have no ceremonies and no symbols in religion. In church, none of that. We're just going to be about Jesus. How well does that work? No, we are human beings who we need images. We, I mean, first of all, Jesus himself gave us communion and baptism, which are shadows. They're shadows. Okay, those do not do anything for you. They are a symbol of what Christ has already done. And what he will do in the future. We're going to talk more about that at the end. I'm getting ahead of myself. Biblically, we're instructed to gather together in the way that that has taken place, even before the church existed, was in the form of a service. God's people come together, and there's liturgy, and there's music, and God's word, and it's awesome, and we have a service. We have the cross. Now, nowhere in the Bible does it say you need to have a cross on the back wall of your church. But that is a powerful symbol. It reminds us of Christ's sacrifice. It reminds us that we are to take up our cross and follow him. If anything, I think in our church culture here, we need more symbols. We need more reminders of who Jesus is. But the danger is, you know, pump the brakes real quick. The danger is we become so focused on those that we lose track of Jesus. We need shadows, but only to the point that they point to Jesus and what he's going to do in the future. Now, it would be foolish for us to go back to the Old Testament ceremonies, though there are Christians who try to do this, which I'm like, dude, a third of the Bible was written, well, a third of the New Testament was written to combat that type of idea. But there are people who try to go back to those Old Testament ceremonies. Well, there's no point in that. They pointed to Jesus. But are we still waiting for some things to be realized? Uh Uh-huh. We're still waiting for eternity. Okay, we need to be reminded of a whole lot of what Jesus is going to do. And so we have shadows. Two of which, uh, the foremost, baptism and communion. So here's what we ask ourselves. Does this shadow, does this practice in the church, does this ceremony, does this tradition make much of Jesus or does it distract from the truth of Jesus? That is the question we should ask ourselves every single time. Does this point to Jesus or does it distract from Jesus? You know, God's Old Testament people, Israel, way back when they were wandering in the wilderness, remember we went through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. A lot of you were asleep then, I think, but we went through that a little while ago. Numbers 21, the people had rebelled. There were snakes biting them. It was a whole mess. 
And God instructed Moses to build a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, lift it up, and those who looked at it would be healed. And according to John 3, that was a symbol of Jesus. That Jesus, the Son of God, was lifted up on a cross, and those who look on him and believe are healed. They're forgiven. And yet, according to 2 Kings 18, 4, after that event happened, what did the Israelites do with that snake? They didn't just put it in that junk drawer that we all have. They began worshiping it. They began offering incense to it. And so the king had to just to destroy it. We are in the business of taking the good shadows that God gives us, the good symbols that God gives us, and turning them into idols. We have to be aware of that. Hebrews 11, we have this hall of faith, right? This list of all these Christians, well, actually, they weren't even technically Christians, but just God followers, people who trusted in God, who've gone before us. And then the next chapter, in chapter 12, there's a reference to this cloud of witnesses, that we as Christians can imagine it, that we are surrounded by a stadium full of all the people who have trusted in God throughout the centuries, and they're cheering us on to the finish line. It's this awesome image. And you know what? I'll let you in on a secret because I wasn't here my first week of vacation. When I go on vacation, I go to other churches. (gasps) And I went to an Eastern Orthodox church my first Sunday. Uh, It was a friend of mine who goes to that church, and I had been researching um, that, that group of people, and it was amazing. They had this beautiful sanctuary in this ancient style, Byzantine style, And every square foot of the walls was painted in, was was painted all of these people. Christ was at the top, then the apostles and the prophets, saints and martyrs, men, women, children, all of these people who had followed God throughout history are painted on the walls. And so as you are worshiping, I mean, it's strengthened my faith. It's my faith. It still gives me goosebumps today because as you're worshiping, it's not just, well, these are the people that I worship with, but the cloud of witnesses is around me. You're reminded of that. There's a visual representation of that cloud of witnesses. But in that same moment of awe at this beautiful tradition that they have at the same, in the same place, There were icons of saints that were up front that people were venerating. They would bow to them and sometimes kiss them. And I know that sounds weird, and there's some cultural elements to that. But I was thinking to myself, you know, this was a very Christ-centered service. It was a, I could have preached that sermon. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ. But I was was sitting there thinking, man, in this wonderful Christ-centered service, I wonder if people ever get so focused on venerating a saint that they miss Jesus. I wonder if that happens. Because the wicked hearts of men, we worship saints rather than the creator. We worship angels rather than the creator. We worship pastors rather than the creator. Because the New Testament tells us, okay, you need to appoint shepherds, elders, pastors to shepherd the flock. It's a very biblical thing. And yet here here in Western churchianity, we take the senior pastor and we start worshiping him. We make him a celebrity. It's a wicked thing. It's a wicked thing. You know, we point our fingers at the Catholics. Why would you pray to Mary? Whenever I have a problem, I just go to my pastor. If you do have a problem, you can come to me, just FYI. <laughs> or go to Steve or anyone. I'm, but, but you get what I'm saying, right? Like, we are not to be worshipped. 
All right, one last thing. So, so my wife, uh, her family has a blueberry field. It's in air quotes because it ain't a field no more. But I hear all these wonderful stories about the blueberry field and driving the truck around the blueberry field. It is a forest of saplings, right? This big around, just, just too big to bush hog, all right? Just over the line, too big to bush hog. It costs a lot of money to clear that field. And that's the difficulty of having a blueberry field. Unlike a normal field, which you can just mow or hay every year, a blueberry field has shrubbery in it, right? You want to regularly burn it or cut it back or whatever you have to do to you know, get the blueberries to come back again, but you want shrubbery. And so it's this battle because saplings want to come in. The forest wants to reclaim the fields. And that's the danger, is you need shrubbery to have blueberries. You can't just mow it every, every week and expect blueberries. But at the same point, if you don't watch it carefully, it will turn into a forest. All it takes is a few lazy years, and then you've got a problem on your hands, especially if you aren't allowed to burn where your field is. And that's how it is with the church. We need shadows. They point to Jesus. But we have to be so careful because those same shadows, if they steal the show from Jesus, they will strangle us. Then they will steal so much. We must not allow the shadows of religion to replace what Jesus has accomplished. And I challenge you to just search your own hearts for places where maybe you have lifted up an element of Christianity, an element of church worship, as something greater than Christ, that it's become your focus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are God who has revealed yourself. You've given us your word. You've given us your spirit. You've given us so many figures who have gone before us. You've given us traditions and you've given us symbols. And I pray in all of that, may we see you clearly. May we not be distracted or led astray, but may we see you clearly, Jesus. Amen. Thank you.